Hey. Hello. Welcome to Mind Your Business. I'm Gil Casimiro. I'm Jess DeBakey. And we're here to give you a closer look into the business of behavioral health by speaking to the people making it happen. This week, Ankit Gupta, founder and CEO of Bicycle Health. Welcome, Ankit. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So for our listeners today, we have Ankit Gupta, who is the founder and CEO of Bicycle Health, which we'll hear a lot about today. Bicycle brings a unique approach to solving the substance use epidemic in the U.S., uh, work for which it was named as one of Time's most influential companies just last year, which is a pretty cool accolade. But maybe more importantly, they've helped 15,000 patients with opioid use disorder so far, if my numbers are up to date, and they've avoided or cut out an estimated billion dollars plus in costs, and are generally a company that um, Jess and I are pretty excited about. Bicycle was, was Ankit's first formal adventure in the healthcare industry, and before that, he was the co-founder and CTO of Pulse News, which is a newsreader app that LinkedIn acquired um, with what feels like the sole intent uh, uh, of getting me to refresh LinkedIn 12 times a day. It's that thing you see in the top right of the newsfeed. Um, he's also had a fun academic path uh, from graduating with a degree in comp sci in India to getting his master's in CS from Stanford, which as I understand is kind of a prerequisite for being allowed to work and live in San Francisco. Well, welcome. Um, I'd love to hear about Bicycle. Tell us kind of what is the problem that you've set out to solve and what are you doing that's different from others who are trying to solve a similar problem? Yes, I mean, I think everyone, uh, uh, it's no surprise that we have an opioid epidemic. 10 million people misuse opioids every year, over 100,000 overdose uh, deaths. Uh, and, and that rate has actually gone up during the pandemic. So it's, it's made the problem worse. I learned about the opioid epidemic mainly through the work that my wife does. Uh, so she, she's a physician. Uh, we got married about five years ago and, uh, you know, started learning about the patients she's seeing and, and and what she does at the hospital and and we were living in Boston at that time and I was quite surprised by how many patients with opioid use disorders substance use disorders were, were coming in and um, you know I think that was about when the fentanyl epidemic had kind of started to take shape and, and now fentanyl is in the drug supply kind of across the country um, and so I started learning more started talking to people in recovery started uh, um hearing stories of, of sort of how addiction developed, how they got into treatment, how, how recovery is going. And I realized that there are so many barriers to, to getting help. Um, you know, a big barrier was just the stigma of addiction alone. You know, people didn't want to be seen walking into clinics. They didn't want to have their car be parked outside. A lot of people who are using opioid pills didn't feel like they are a heroin addict or opioid addict kind of like this person injecting versus yeah. kind of the same thing so there's a lot of stigma there's a lot of just barriers around the care model the efficacy around having doctors available nearby you know 40 percent of counties in the u.s don't even have a single medical provider that can provide opioid addiction treatment uh, sometimes patients have to travel long distances so all these barriers um uh, essentially manifest in the data you know 90 percent of people with opioid use disorder don't access treatment. Um, and, and that number hasn't changed. It's only gotten worse during the pandemic. Yeah. So I think, you know, the more stories I heard, the more I felt like the more personal it became, right? This can happen to me. Like I, you know, I, 
I could be prescribed opiates and, 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 you know, the outcomes could be as worse. Uh, and, and so I thought telemedicine is a great way to overcome a lot of these barriers, especially stigma, especially availability of doctors, especially the care model. And, and, you know, we really wanted to increase access to high quality, convenient and confidential opioid use disorder treatment. Um, so that's why we started Bicycle Health. We, uh, you know, had humble <laughs> beginnings. We were a small clinic in Redwood City, California. Uh, uh, we were serving our community. We had a, a 50 or 100 patients and, and uh, essentially it was a small business. Uh, but then some of the regulations changed during the pandemic, which really allowed us to scale our care model. Um, and, and we saw that our outcomes uh, actually got better. Uh, uh, because of some of the changes we made on the care model side. And so that's what really allowed us to scale and, and you know, is, is allowing us to make the kind of impact you mentioned. We're, we've actually served now over 17,000 patients. Uh, we're now in 26 states, uh, in fact, 27. We just launched in Minnesota today. Um, and, and so we're really able to now uh, expand access quite quickly while providing a pretty high quality of care. Since the time of recording, Bicycle has expanded their reach even more. They've now served 20,000 patients to date across 32 states. I'm uh, curious what that transition looked like from brick and mortar clinic to virtual. Um, was the plan always to go the telehealth route and you felt like the best kind of step in that direction and path into the market was to start in person? And then what did that look like to take it to that step and expand? Yeah, so the plan was always to have a telehealth model, but uh, there was a regulation, or there is a regulation called the Ryan Hate Act, which is waived during COVID. The regulation mandates that an in-person exam needs to be, uh, needs to have happened in order to prescribe any controlled medications uh, over telemedicine. And the medications we prescribe, buprenorphine, naloxone, or suboxone is a controlled medication. So our care model is a comprehensive care model that includes medications, psychotherapy, case management, care navigation, at-home drug testing, uh, and a lot more. Um, but this comprehensive care model hinges on medications uh, as, as, as you know, being highly efficacious. So uh, we necessarily had to have a clinic setting where patients would come in in person and then continue their treatment over telemedicine afterwards if, they were, uh, if that was appropriate for them. Um, I think there was also a culture where hybrid care would somehow deliver better outcomes. Like somehow you would deliver a better relationship with the patient if you're if they're seen, uh, at least initially. Uh, you know, somehow it'll be more accessible. Uh, a lot of those assumptions were challenged during COVID. So, you know, the the Ryan Hate Act was waived during the public health emergency. Um, we had safety concerns, so we made sure our medical providers start working from home. Uh, fortunately, we already had the telemedicine platform built out, so we it was very easy for us to move our entire patient panel to a purely telemedicine-based model. Um, and and we monitored outcomes for the next uh, few months, uh, and and what we found was that outcomes were actually improving. You know, we were way more responsive to patients. Patients were way more engaged. Uh, our median time to enroll a patient you know, since they, from, from the time they call us to the time their, their initial appointment happens, went down from, from four days to just under 24 hours. 
And and that's huge because the window of motivation to change your life, especially, you know, overcome addiction is is pretty short. Like it's quite easy to text someone and they'll show up with pills, you know, at your doorstep. Uh, so so enrolling in treatment needs to be as as easy as well. And we were able to achieve that through through telemedicine. So that's when we scaled, we opened our our clinic up essentially to the entire state of California. And we were overwhelmed by demand. Literally, our systems broke uh, by by the demand that that existed. And that's when I realized, I mean, I never thought this is a venture-backed business. You know, uh, mm. you mentioned Pulse News. Um, you know, that was a venture-backed business. We raised financing and we, we eventually got acquired by LinkedIn. Um, but I was working on Docs and Hackers. It was a nonprofit, you know. Bicycle Health was a community business. It was a small business. Um, so, so we actually saw that since the care model is improving, the outcomes can be great. And now we can actually reach the kind of scale that a tech company can. You know, it, it made sense to, to raise a round of financing and, and, and start growing the company that way. Very cool pivot. Uh, I can imagine it took a lot for your team. What, one thing I wanted to reflect on that you said was that uh, you, it kind of became a personal mission for you and you could see how you could be impacted by it too. Something I, I want to admit is like, I actually c- couldn't see how I would never, like I would never be impacted, but I, I wouldn't become an opioid addict until I had oral surgery. And I got <laughs> oh prescribed opioids. And for those who haven't had them, like they, they are scarily good. Uh, like like they're, I actually, I took them maybe for a couple of days and then I had to throw the pill box away because I was like, this is, yeah. This is amazing. And you can imagine if someone um, is going through a lot of stuff in their life, yeah, how easy it is to get hooked. It yeah. was really scary. Yeah. Really scary. I mean, my friends told me, people in recovery, uh, you know, who, who I'm close to, uh, they said, you know, I took, I took opioids. I, I felt great. And I was like, if I can feel this way, constantly like (laughs) how better how much better can life be you know like that's the mindset i had another friend who again had surgery started taking opioids uh and she was like after after about a couple of weeks she was like i'm still taking these pills but i don't really like need to but i still kind of want to like it was a lot of sort of almost introspection to 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 really make sure that she stops taking those pills because otherwise the default is you know she was just taking right. pills. and I was prescribed like thirty of them yeah mm-hmm. yeah so the the data shows it's so scary yeah. by the way one single pill one single day uh, of opioid prescription the chances of you continuing to take opioids after a year is six percent so so that's just a single day if you get a thirty day prescription the chances of you continuing to take opioids after a year is forty percent. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that goes up obviously. And so a 30 day prescription was the norm. In fact, 60 day prescriptions were, were the norm and it was very easy to get refills, you know, three or four years ago. Thankfully that has changed now. Um, but imagine, and imagine the, the effect not only on the individual, but also on the families, majority of teenage opioid addiction starts in the medicine cabinet. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, uh, uh, there's very few people who actually use safe disposal of drugs. So if you just kind of throw them in the trash or whatever, you know, that that can affect other people. 
That's terrifying. You were talking a little bit about like that transition from the brick and mortar to telehealth and how that was impacted by the regulation shifting as a result of COVID. And I saw in the news somewhat recently, like now that some of those regulations in certain states have been reversed again, um, that kind of has put an impact on your team. And you guys have taken the step to go back to sending in-person providers some in some places where there's yeah. really a high need and the regulation no longer allows telehealth. Can you talk a little more about that? I, I thought it was amazing. Yeah, I'm glad you brought it up. You know, majority of the states during COVID have actually made progress in in terms of improving telemedicine access broadly and, and also improving telemedicine access for opiate use disorder treatment specifically. Uh, essentially, what that entails is either not having an in-person requirement for telemed telemedicine prescribing of controlled substances or allowing buprenorphine to be carved out. Uh, because buprenorphine is the medication that we prescribe and also helps uh, treat opioid addiction. But ironically, it's a controlled medication, just like opioids are a controlled medication. So, you know, that label kind of throws the baby out of the bathwater. Um, and, and so majority of the states have moved forward. Even on the federal level, we are expecting the DEA to come out with a special registration process for controlled prescribing, um, controlled medication prescribing that actually carves out buprenorphine. Uh, so there's a lot of progress that has been made, but you know, a few states have moved backwards. Um, uh, one of the most egregious states is Alabama in this case. So Alabama is the state that has the highest opioid prescribing rate in the country. Alabama has a single, just under one opioid prescription for every single man, woman, and child. In oh my God. In a year. So, you know, state that has the highest opioid prescribing uh, rates made it harder for telemedicine-based opioid use disorder treatment, especially a state that's quite rural. Uh, and so what they did was uh, basically create a requirement that an in-person exam has to happen in the in the 12 months prior to, to uh, providing a prescription through, through telemedicine. Um, it took us by surprise. You know, we really tried hard to um, uh, uh, sort of educate lawmakers. I'm still doing that now, but but the receptivity seems pretty low. Um, and so uh, what happened was we created a task force. We had over 500 patients in Alabama. Uh, we created a task force internally to help these patients find local providers. And so we had lists of patients. We were doing outreach. We were marking patients that actually got local treatment. Um, think about a venture-backed capitalistic company actually actively discharging patients from their panel. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not trying to brag here, but this is what was needed in order to help our patients continue care because the alternative is relapse, right? And the, and the extension of that, there could be adverse outcomes. Um, and, and so we really wanted to make sure our patients get the care they need, continue to get the care they need. After about a month of this effort, only uh, less than 20% of our patients had actually found local providers because you know, the providers don't exist. That's why telemedicine exists. That's why they reached out to Bicycle in the first place um, for a variety of reasons. And so we were stuck between a rock and a hard place where we still had over 400 patients who needed to continue their medication. A week was to go for this regulation to kick in. So we scrambled hard and we sent two of our providers on the ground. They stayed in a hotel room in Birmingham, <laughs> you know, 
rented out the conference in the hotel room and basically did physical exams yeah. all day long uh, for six days straight. And essentially, we're able to help about 300 of our patients to wow. you know, be seen. Imagine doing 300 physical exams back to back for six days. And, and that too, we had to send two providers because if one is on vacation or you know, one is kind of not available, we, we need another provider. So it, it just makes the operation so complex. Um, and, and, and so thankfully we were able to see, you know, at least 300 patients, they came from all across the state to Birmingham. So we weren't able to, you know, drive around an RV or whatever. Uh, and, and so now we have more time. We have 12 months to, um, continue to find local providers for, for these patients. Uh, but what about the other hundred or so patients, right. Who weren't able to make it to Birmingham, uh, and, and, you know, they still don't have local providers and we're still scrambling and we can't continue prescribing medications for them. Um, so uh, I think, I think regulators, you know, overall this, this regulation in Alabama helped improve telehealth access, but there are nuances to consider, uh, and, and real patient impact that happens. And, 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 and I think these regulators didn't do a good job at, at understanding what happened, you know, what opioid use disorder, um, how opioid use disorder care could be affected through this change. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That is really cool. Um, <laughs> it, and hard to in, imagine. I, <laughs> I worked at Uber a long time ago and a lot of our operations were extremely scrappy, but didn't usually involve, you know, massively changing the lives of 300 people in the course of one week by, um, <laughs> you know, giving them the access to healthcare. So that is, um, that is super cool. Um, you brought up one I'm point. I'm very that proud. Was... Yeah. I'm proud yeah. of the team. I mean, they, they scraped together this operation in, in hours, literally. Very cool. Yeah. I think having that muscle is so important as a team. And then this is also what, um, one team I worked on, we used to call type two fun, right? The stuff that's really hard in the moment and really uncomfortable, but then you look back and you're like, wow, th those were the good old days. That was really fun. Um, yeah. One point you brought up, I wanted to come back to, I thought it was really interesting, right? You Like on the one hand, you are a venture back startup. You guys raised 50 million recently from some really reputable investors. And um, on the other, there is um, the kind of like the right thing to do for the member. In the ideal scenario, they always match up nicely. But of course, as we know, they don't always, yeah. right? Like Cerebro got into some hot water trying to, I think, over-optimize for revenue yeah. uh, by over-prescribing. Um, and then you mentioned this specific example where you basically did the thing that is better for members, but worse for revenue. How, how do you, like when you set goals on a quarterly or annual basis for your company, how do you balance those two? Like if I had a row for, you know, we have a revenue goal and a row for member outcomes goal, like, and then, and they're not in, in line. Like, how do you, do you instill the kind of culture where the right thing for the member is, is the thing that you go with, or how do you balance those two? Yeah. I mean, I think that problem is more acute in healthcare, but that problem exists in every industry, right? Yeah. I mean, think about what happened, uh, what's happening in meta with teenage suicide and, and a bunch of other stuff. Um, yeah. you know oil companies with oil spills like it's 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 a it's a problem with capitalism uh, uh the north star metric for our company is 
something called comprehensive care units. So, uh, again, unfortunately, you need metrics to optimize. Like, that's how businesses work, right? Um, and it's typically pretty bad to have just one metric to optimize because that has negative externalities. Um, and, and so you kind of want to have one metric to optimize so that you can rally the company against that metric, but you also want to have checks and balances against the negative externalities. So, you know, we're still trying to learn what that metric is for our company. Uh, it's definitely not revenue. It's definitely not patience, you know? So, this is the first time we're trying this, but we, we were calling it comprehensive care units. What that means is how many patients in the last 30-day periods received comprehensive care? Comprehensive care includes medication management, but not just for opioid use disorder. Opioid use disorder and other co-occurring conditions. Uh, did they receive active, uh, were they working towards their treatment goals or, or, their, or their life goals, right? Did they receive active uh, uh case management towards goals or psychotherapy towards goals? Uh, did they receive at-home drug testing? Uh, you know, did they receive financial support? So that we've created this metric where we believe that maximizing this metric allows us to deliver on our mission, which is to provide high quality, convenient and confidential care for opioid use disorder treatment for all. Um, also, this metric does align with revenue to some extent, right? Um, but but you know, there, it's not it's not it's not directly aligned with revenue. So there will be tensions where where optimizing this metric might not necessarily optimize this re optimize revenue, um, and and those tensions can be resolved through going back to our mission, going back to our values, uh, and 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 you know, how that seeps into our culture. So so I talked about our mission, you know, as a company, we've created our values, which are, you know, uh, us creating together, leading with empathy and respect, you know, always learning and improving, moving with intention and fostering trust and driving impact. Um, I'm able to read these values out to you because they're literally in front of me. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a piece of paper taped to my computer. So we take our values really seriously and, and try to live by those values. Um, and so I think, I think the way we're trying to solve this problem is by picking metrics that are actually mission aligned uh, and, 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 and in some ways help drive revenue, in some ways help drive the, the sort of KPIs, but not in a direct way. Because when you straight shot Hit try to hit re revenue or other metrics things things go wrong so so they're aligned with the mission but then also having the culture having the values um, essentially having the intent <laughs> to help people uh, uh, creating creating the checks checks and balances mm -hmm. um, you know if you look at the investors who have invested in bicycle uh, there's always a social component to the investors that have invested in bicycle. Um, and and if if there's not a social component, I've had the conversation with our investors around how do you think about trade-offs between patient growth and quality of the care? Because there will always be, you know, some some trade-off where we might want to 
pause on patient growth, sort of invest in quality, or we feel like the quality is great, we want to want to accelerate patient growth. And and I've looked for nuanced responses. Like there's no black or white, right? Like a lot of what Cerebral did um, could be portrayed as both good and both bad. So so there's some nuance. And 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 if I have discovered a way of thinking through uh, what how someone would make that decision, um, then they're you know worthy of 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 joining mm-hmm. the board. Uh, yeah, so I think I think it's sort of multifactorial, but it comes from obviously having the right intention, uh, but then also creating the right metrics, uh, you know, having the right culture, having the right board. Um, yeah. 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 Hopefully that works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and uh this this is a podcast about the business of behavioral health. So maybe as a as a follow-up, um, I'm curious about how you, you think about your business model and First of all, like how you think about pricing and how you package and and customers and so on, but also how you think that will evolve. Like, you know, everyone's talking about value-based care. Is there a component of that in the future? I'm curious how you think about that. Absolutely. I mean, I think uh, I hundred percent believe in value-based care. I think that incentivizes uh, uh, the right right behaviors from from all parties uh, uh, aligned with with the patient's goals, if you construct the value uh, model, right? Uh, so so the way we contract with payers and employers is on a value-based care model. So it's a, it's a the rails of the model is a bundled payment model. So uh, I mentioned the comprehensive set of services we provide, right? We basically contract on a on a bundle based on the comprehensive set of services we provide some patients might get more service some patients might get less you know we take risk on that uh, and 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 the payer has to just pay us a single bundle either either a monthly bundle or a bundle based on acuity level where the first month there might be more acute services but then but then the following months there are less and, and so on so we sort of figure out what works for for the payer and and what works in their claims system most importantly. Um, and then there are typically uh, upside downside risk agreements on top. Um, sometimes that gets too complicated. So it might just be a, a sort of performance bonus or, 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 or some sort of incentive. Typically the incentives are aligned around uh, care metrics and financial goals. So are we saving on total cost of care? And then are we delivering on uh, uh, typically the clinical outcome that is sort of well understood and agreed upon in addiction medicine is retention in treatment. Um, and so the longer a patient is retained in treatment, the longer uh, they're actually working towards their recovery goals. Um, that doesn't mean the patient has to be on medications, right? The patient might be completely off medications, but they might still be working towards the recovery goals through joining support groups, through being in therapy, through working with coaches and, and, and recovery coaching, et cetera. Um, you know, patients might completely go off of treatment after several years, uh, but but there's still some relapse prevention that that needs to continue. So, so you know, we never want, I don't think there's 100% retention in treatment that, that can be expected, uh, but we want a pretty significant uh, retention in treatment. And, and, and our care model, you know, delivers, uh, 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 almost 70% retention in treatment at the 12-month mark. 
um, so significantly higher than the than the standard of care uh, today. And and so I think that becomes a, a key uh, performance indicator in our in our budget contracts. Um, some contracts have other other markers. So anyways, we but contract you... on a value based model. How do you balance that with graduation rates or making sure you're not like adding cost to the system by keeping people in treatment longer than they actually need to be? Yeah. So, I mean, part of it is, uh, again, uh, the the relationship that the patient and provider have, right? So what the treatment path should be is a shared decision between the patient and the provider. Uh, there are several patients who feel confident in their recovery to say, you know, I want to taper off this medication. Um, and, and I think I can take a taper off in a month or two months. And, and if that's a shared decision with their medical provider, the provider will actually create a taper plan and will check in and will help the patients completely taper off. Um, some patients, even after they're fully tapered off the medication, they're still interested in recovery supports, right? Because there's still triggers that could happen that could lead to relapse. And, and the best way to manage those triggers is through just ongoing kind of CBT work, ongoing coaching, ongoing support groups, et cetera. Um, so most of our patients, you know, do engage in some ways, uh, uh, even if they're not on medication. Uh, but, but a lot of patients, you know, their goals are actually more lifestyle goals and and not necessarily tied to medications. For example, their goals might be um, to get their job back or to grow in their career or to get their kids back from child protective services or, or move back in with their with their spouse or you know whatever uh, health and wellness goals, right? So often when patients are achieving those goals, and that's why working on goals is one of the components of comprehensive care units. Right. So if we are helping patients achieve goals and there's always more goals to work towards, the medication just becomes a tool to work on these goals, kind of like insulin is for, you know, someone with diabetes. Right. If the medication is helping you achieve the goals, perhaps we should stay on the medication. If the medication is not helping you achieve the goals, then perhaps we should taper off. So, you know, these are conversations that happen constantly. Um, there's the problem of opioid use disorder is so massive that even if Bicycle becomes, you know, <laughs> a large, large company, we will probably still not, you know, solve the problem. So, you know, we we love to have patients be stable, maybe even transfer to their primary care doctor. And, and there's always more people that we can help. That leads into the question that's been in the back of my mind, which is around that transfer point, whether it's it's not always probably at the end of the patient's journey, it could be anywhere throughout where they need to be referred to primary care, they need to be referred to specialty or other behavioral health services that you might not have within the bicycle umbrella. Um, so what does that look like? And how do you think about kind of the bridging of behavioral health and opioid use disorder treatment in general with medical care more holistically? That's a great question. I mean, my vision for Bicycle is to have a pretty comprehensive outpatient care provider for people with opioids. So that includes primary care, behavioral health care, severe mental illnesses, 
probably has some in-person component um, and 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 then really good integrations into um, into higher levels of care. Um, we're, we're not there yet, but we're taking baby steps, but we're making sure we're integrating into the health system while taking those baby steps. So, you know, internally within Bicycle, we're not only treating opioid use disorder, but treating a pretty large range of behavioral health services. It just happens to be the case that we're seeing patients who have a hard time getting off opioids. So we're focused on people who are getting off opioids, but we're helping them with other substance use disorders. We're helping them with anxiety, depression, and other behavioral health conditions, both through medication management and psychotherapy. So we have a team of uh, MDs that are double boarded in their primary specialty in addiction medicine. We have a team of nurse practitioners and physician assistants who are highly experienced with addiction medicine, and they all have a family medicine internal medicine background. So we're able to provide a really high level of sort of behavioral health care as much as a as an expert, you know, primary care provider can, can provide. Along with that, we have a large team of licensed clinical social workers. Uh, and so they're working closely with our medical providers to provide psychotherapy to patients. Um, in addition to that, we have a team of um, recovery coaches that are certified. Uh, so they are providing a lot of the peer support and, and sort of case management services. And then we have a large team of unlicensed clinical support specialists. So the clinical support specialists provide a lot of the integration uh, that, that you mentioned. Uh, so finding uh, referral endpoints. So if, if patients need psychiatry for, for severe mental illnesses, if, if patients don't have primary care and they actually need a primary care provider, um, a lot of our patients, you know, even going beyond medical care, right? Uh, sometimes they need help with other kind of social determinants of health. So finding a sober housing uh, facility, uh, helping with with skills training and, and getting a job, helping with getting legal support, you know, for, for something that's going on. So a lot of these can be barriers to care. And so our team, you know, helps connect with other medical providers uh, uh, and, and non-medical providers to really make sure that, that uh, you know, there's no barrier to, to our patient's care. And, and that helps us improve outcomes. So that's why we contract on a value-based care model because, you know, that, that work is, 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 is uh, uh, really in, in, in the best interest of our patients and the, and the best interest of our, of our payers. Um, I think over time, we can probably build a pretty comprehensive model where, where very little referral action needs to happen because every referral there's a conversion rate and 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 you know patients patients many patients end up not following through and that still affects the quality of care uh, so we're trying to make sure we're actually building our services with as many in-house uh, you know service lines as we can and one more thing by the way uh, we intentionally did not build an EMR so a lot of digital health companies built EMRs um, whereas we are actually using Athena Health as our EMR and we've built a lot of technology mm. on top of Athena Health. So that again allows us to integrate with other healthcare providers seamlessly because we can share notes, we can get right. referrals, we can send referrals, uh, we can obviously send claims. So, you know, we, we knew that integrating into the healthcare system is going to be very important for our patients and we made sure that technology can support that. I think one more question for you as we wrap, when you look into the future uh, of 
you know, the opioid use space, maybe behavioral health more broadly. What do you think are, are the kind of, how, how might it look different in five years time? What do you think is going to change or has to change? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Number one. <laughs> I think you have a list. Stigma. I have a list. Yeah. <laughs> how long do we have? <laughs> but number one is the stigma needs to go away. Um, you know, behavioral health conditions are just like any other medical conditions. Uh, many people are at risk. It's hard to understand whether you're at risk or not. And if you are in the midst of a behavioral health problem, uh, there's certain level of treatment that you need. Um, and, and there's no shame in that. Um, and I'm really happy to see the stigma for, you know, some of the mental health conditions come down, right? Uh, I, I think, unfortunately, we've seen the incidence of mental health go up during the pandemic also. But but I've seen, uh, especially employers and, and, and folks in the benefit space, um, you know, just the broader sort of community uh, as a whole, starting to realize that behavioral health conditions are just like any other conditions. I don't think that has happened for substance use disorder quite yet. We're seeing uh, seeing signs of improvement. Um, you know, a few years ago, an employer would probably fire someone who didn't pass a drug test, right? But now we're seeing employers actually refer patients to care and actually want to, you know, help help patients get better. But I think that has that needs to happen at scale. So my my hope is, you know, five years from now, we think about behavioral health conditions as just like any other medical condition, and, and there's no stigma, treatment access is instant so that we can prevent the conditions from getting worse and, 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 and people can live better lives. So I think that's my biggest ask. My second biggest ask is this system that we've created in, in health insurance where medical benefits are different from behavioral health benefits needs to change. It, essentially, we created a system where we were trying to contain cost for behavioral health versus actually improve outcomes for behavioral mm -hmm. health. The more integrated these systems are, the better outcomes are going to be, the lower costs are going to be. Um, papers are coming out about this now. I think all the major health plans are working towards integration. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. And, and that's actually one of the things that has helped Bicycle contract better because we're a medical group providing services that are both on the medical side and the behavioral health side. So, so I would like to see more integration, essentially single systems, and that needs to go beyond just the commercial health plan, but, but in the exchange market, in the Medicaid market, in, in VA, et cetera, sort of have that be the philosophy all across. Um, and then I think the third thing is, you know, we need to significantly improve regulations to increase access to behavioral health treatment. Like you saw how, regulations could uh, essentially turn off access for, for patients in Alabama with opioid use disorder treatment, right? Um, regulations have a significant role to play in, in whether patients get access to treatment or not. And I don't think we have a really good understanding of, of where those levers are. I don't think even people in DC have a great understanding of where those levers are, but those levers are massive and other countries have shown us those levers are massive. So we, we need a pretty 
kind of significant investment in understanding those regulatory levers and changing those regulatory levers so that you know companies like us shouldn't even exist right like we're we're trying to we're trying to solve a problem that the system created because of regulations because of these sort of uh, um, broken broken parts of the healthcare system uh, and 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 it's only getting worse um, so those are those are my hopes for for the next few years yeah cosine <laughs> done we'll make it yeah. happen yeah well thank you so much and kid it was such a pleasure to learn about bicycle to learn about you and your vision and to learn more about the the oud space the SUD space um yeah it's been really really a pleasure talking anything else from you jess no thank you so much i wish we could have double the time because yeah. this was awesome i yeah. learned a lot so thank you <laughs> No, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. This was fun. Thanks for listening. We've got new episodes coming out every other Tuesday, so stay tuned wherever you get your podcasts. And feel free to connect with us on LinkedIn if you're interested in chatting more or even being on the show. See you next time.